flagging finances. This station launches its first pledge drive in over a decade, asking listeners to pay for your sins. We're living in in really tight times and really tough times, um, and coming out of the pandemic has, has not been easy for anyone, and sin's no different. Seen and heard how advocates are raising awareness on today's LGBTQ Domestic Violence Awareness Day. It's simply not being recognised by other awareness campaigns, so it's just so important that uh, LGBTQ plus communities um, feel that there is support out there for them. And Budget Week. Victorian Treasurer Tim Pallas hands down his ninth state budget amid a cost of living crisis. This is a budget we need for the future, for a state that is stronger, fairer and more compassionate than ever. This is our promise. We won't let you down. Hear all the details from Sin Media's news team later this hour. Good afternoon. You're listening to On The Beat, wrapping this week's biggest stories. I'm Sarah. And I'm Liz, broadcasting from Sin's Melbourne studios based in the Eastern Kulin Nations. We'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people whose lands we're reporting from today. Woman Jika, welcome to the program and thank you for your company. We've got lots of news to come. SIN has launched its first Radiothon pledge drive in over a decade, aiming to raise $50,000 in three weeks. General Manager Ruby Smith says she'll use the money to tackle challenges facing the station. She spoke to Lachlan Patrick about the fundraiser. This is our our first Radiothon in a really long time. It's time to pay for your sins. Uh, And Radiothon is our donations funding drive. So we are looking to secure $50,000 of funding to help keep the station alive, to fund our core operations, including our leadership team, which is our amazing group of super talented volunteer producers and um, music leads and radio managers. Um, And it's, you know, hoping to, to support them as well as the events that we run for our volunteers and just the, the general costs that are associated with running a radio station. With it being so long since the last radio song, what, what prompted the decision for this one? Is Sin in trouble? Look, I think it's a, it's a tough time for every organisation right now. Uh, it's, we're living in, in really tight times and really tough times, um, and coming out of the pandemic has, has not been easy for anyone, and Sin's no different. Um, it's been a really, really challenging few years, um, and this is sort of an opportunity for the community to come out and support us and um, donate to a station that, you know, hopefully supports them. Um, you know, if, if the community and the listeners feel supported by us, we hope that that can be, can be returned. Um, yeah, t- times are tight, but I think that's, that's the same for many organizations, and we just want to make sure that they don't get too tight. You do have... A social enterprise background is kind of the money maker for sin. Is that background coming in handy this year? I would say absolutely. Um, my background before my my previous role at sin, so my journey at sin, I started as a volunteer in 2019. I was studying law and criminology at the time, and sin was so wonderful that I abandoned all of that and just um, stuck with the station. Um, I was within the SIN Media Learning Program as a trainer and then was the social enterprise manager, as you mentioned. So I was working within social enterprise and not-for-profit sort of business management for a while before moving into into this current role. Um, and I, I think that that's been really key because, you know, running a not-for-profit, it can be really easy to, um, let's say, get bogged down in the, in the details of... Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to really specifically say this. Uh, it, it can be really easy in a not-for-profit to be focused on um, the details of the everyday running and to let the 
sort of financial planning fall by the wayside. I, I certainly am, you know, would, would love to let them fall by the wayside because budgets are terrifying and, and boring and I'm no good at them. Uh, but you, you have to be, you have to force yourself to be and to work on them. Um, and I think that a lot of smaller organizations, you know, it's really taxing to to run a business and to organize finances. If you're a larger not-for-profit, you outsource a lot of that work. Um, and that's something that smaller organizations struggle with constantly and smaller not-for-profits and, and social enterprises struggle with all the time because it's it's a lot of work. And when you don't have the staff, it can all fall um, it can sort of start to fall apart really quickly because there's just too many things to get done in the day. Um, so coming into this role with social enterprise background and with that financial leadership and that financial understanding has been really helpful just to make sure that that is our key priority as we navigate the next year. Um, and, you know, led to uh, to Radiothon and to getting this fundraising up. It's been in the works for a really long time. Our previous general manager, Evram, um, who is the best, really kicked this all off about a year ago. Uh, and yeah, it's, I think it's been a long time coming, but um, having the financial background has, has certainly been helpful. You talked about navigating the next year. Is that a question? Um, I think it's a question for everyone right now. We're in a cost of living crisis. We're in... Well, starting to look a little bit like a, you know, a little nervously like a recession. And not-for-profits are, of course, really hit by that. When the purse strings tighten on funding, not-for-profits are, are generally the first to be hit. Um, we don't sell a good that people would purchase. We rely on generosity. Um, and fortunately, we have a very generous community. And, and even the, the first you know few days of Radiothon have really proved that. Um, but it's it's always a question. It's a question for every business, um, and and sin's no different. Mm, I guess your your good is the the training and the content. Is there a tension that exists between the content that young people are wanting to make, and I guess as you were talking about, they're balancing the books. Yeah, I I think it's we want to provide young people with everything that they could possibly want. Um, that's always the goal with sin. That's always the dream with sin. And I like to think that we do a fair bit of it, but there's always room for scope. And we have a really amazing team with lots of incredibly innovative ideas um, and volunteers as well who come with these fantastic plans. And um, what I'd really love to do with this Radiothon and if we surpass this budget is just be able to um, say yes to more things um, because they're all really exciting and you want to be able to do everything Um and every idea is fantastic. But I think the tension that comes up with balancing those books is that, unfortunately, we're working in a system where a lot of these things cost a lot of money and, and more money every day now. Um, so you sort of have to start to say no to more and more things and, you know, events shrink in size and the ability to offer scholarships shrinks in size, which is something that we really want to boost as a result of this Radiothon. Um for a little bit of context, in order to join SIN, you do uh, induction radio announcer training, which I highly recommend if you're a young person listening and want to get on air. And that does come with a small fee at the start. Um, we try to keep that as low as possible to make it as accessible as possible for young people. Um, but as I mentioned, this is a cost of living crisis. Rent's going up um, and wages are not. And young people are hit especially hard by that. So it can be challenging to afford the cost of, of that. Uh, announcer training, um, particularly for young people from communities that we would love to see more of on air. Um, First Nations and Aboriginal young people are, you know, 
among those most likely to be not able to afford it, young people at risk of homelessness, um, queer young people. These are all groups that we want to see more of on air and hear more of on air. Uh, so we offer at the moment a limited number of scholarships per year where we take on the cost of that induction. So it is completely free for the young person joining in and getting on the air and, and getting their foot in the media industry. Um, and hopefully through this Radiothon and if we're, our funding um, goes sort of as planned, then we'd be able to offer more of them. That was SIN General Manager Ruby Smith. Visit sin.org.au slash donate to learn more about the campaign. Grocery giant Woolworths will take over delivery service Milk Run in a deal that the Australian Financial Review reports is worth around $10 million. The startup aims to deliver groceries in record time, but collapsed after less than two years in April. Now, Woolworths' chief executive, Brad Benducci, says the company is thrilled the Milk Run story will continue to live on. The supermarket's existing quick delivery service will now merge with Milk Run's brand and customer base. Ruby Litter reports. So Milk Run's operations shut down a couple months ago, having exhausted substantial funding and becoming like a notable casualty of the global startup financial kind of turned down and is triggered by like surging inflation and many reasons and also competition because, I mean, you've got Uber in the delivery space service now, which has really taken up a lot of the market. A lot of Milk Run's financial issues came from the fact that they didn't have that resource space and mm. they didn't have the capacity or the stretch to kind of accommodate the mar- what the market was demanding of them. And then you've got Woolworths, which obviously kind of quite neatly fills in mm-hmm. what they were lacking in their services. And it's interesting that, like, this has, has kind of come out of nowhere in a way because I remember when, like, in back in April when, like, Milk Run crashed and stuff and people were talking about it and it was like, oh, my God, Milk Run's, like, crashing, no way. But, like, this does seem like quite the, quite the happy pairing, doesn't it? That was Ruby Littler for Panorama, airing 5 p.m. Thursdays on Sin. Victoria's state budget was handed down this week including spending on education and cost of living measures, as well as new COVID debt levies. It's the state's ninth budget from Treasurer Tim Pallas. This is a budget we need for the future, for a state that is stronger, fairer and more compassionate than ever. This is our promise. We won't let you down. Professor Lucas Walsh is the director of Monash University's Centre for Youth Policy and Education Practice. He spoke to represents Bridie Golding and Freddie Moffat about his takeaway from the budget and a new report about food insecurity among international students. Uh, like a lot of people, I was expecting, because I was expecting a, quite a depressing kind of budget given the amount of savings that governments are seeking to yeah, make. Yeah, I think that's universal. We all were. <laughs> yeah, so... So, look, that news is welcome. And to be honest, in some ways, we're fortunate to live in Victoria, those of us who are here, because some of the more promising developments in careers education have taken place in Victoria. Uh, The state government set out a youth strategy, which I strongly suggest listeners uh, look up. It's the Victorian youth strategy, and, and it sets out these indicators that are quite comprehensive and goals. But also, this kind of financial support to get that experience uh, is really, really valuable because, you know, experience not only enables you to uh, develop social skills, meet people, uh, you know, a sense of money in the pocket, they're also really important for helping you to determine what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do. So we, in our own research, have come across those people who will take up a particular work experience position and go, no, I don't want to go into that particular field. And that's actually really helpful. That's valuable. So supporting young people and particularly in relation to clean energy 
is not only a good move, but a very savvy move because our surveys of young people, like many others, see them as putting uh, young people putting climate change right up there at the top of the most pressing issues of our time. Uh, housing affordability is another one. And so addressing that and combining that work experience with clean energy, I think is a good move and a welcome one. What advice would you give to the listener who's struggling at the moment with affording foods and the basic necessities? What would you say to them? Uh, don't be ashamed that, that times are tough and don't be ashamed to reach out. Uh, reach out to uh, local support organisations. You know, the, the, it, it, there's, there's, no, there's no shame in asking for help. We all need help at some point in our lives, often more than once. I can say that personally and directly. And, uh, and so then the first thing is to get overcome the stigma of it and then to start thinking about, well, okay, uh, what do I need to put in place in order to be able to change my circumstances? And sometimes that involves getting advice from other people around you. So reach out in the first instance, get that help, get that mental health support if you can, but also... Um, you know, just reach out. That's the first step. Absolutely. So it's such an important topic, obviously super relevant for us on Represent because we are uni students. Um, and so, you know, we're definitely feeling the pinch, I think, at the moment. Oh, um, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> despite, I mean, I still live at home, but I still, you know, am experiencing it. Um, so what supports would you and in the report um, were recommended for universities and for government to better support international students but also domestic students generally? Yeah, well, so firstly, with international students, we can support them by fostering connections with existing migrant communities, uh, assisting particularly when they recently, when they newly arrived. So having those supports in place when they arrive will really help to build those connections, if for, for no other reason than to know where the good food is that's affordable and culturally appropriate. Uh, we can also improve our provision of food relief. Uh, financial support, employment help is one suggestion coming out of the report. So helping them to find the work that will enable them to be able to afford the food or where that's difficult, there could be um, vouchers or scholarships. And importantly for university students, this type of support needs to be provided in between semesters because, you know, they might get uh, support from their campuses, but often that pulls back in between semesters. Now, for Young people in general, this is a really, really pressing issue. And our data from the Australian Youth Barometer shows really strikingly high levels of food insecurity amongst the wider population of 18, 24-year-olds. This is completely unacceptable. I mean, we can accept that there might have been cost of living pressures in recent years, but I would always make the case that prior to the pandemic, we'd come out of decades of economic growth. And having come out of that period of economic growth and not being able to get sufficient nutritious food is unacceptable in a place like Australia. So it's a real wake-up call. And that wake-up call has become all the more pressing given that we've seen the rising costs of living and the multiple disruptions that young people have had to go through in their education, their employment, their social life over the last few years. Absolutely. So I think it's fascinating um, to note that obviously what you just said, it has come after a period of really strong growth. Um, and then we experienced COVID, which was obviously a shock to the system for everyone. Um, I was wondering what sort of government like 
initiatives do you think are going to actually push or sorry that's quite not quite the right way to phrase that um, question but what sort of occurrences in the community do you think is going to actually push the government to take action because we've seen you know it's getting worse and worse the housing crisis the cost of living crisis it just keeps on kind of snowballing um do you think there will be a turning point yeah i hope so uh i I'm, I'm not quite sure how much pressure people have to be under before it takes big bold thinking for example about um, housing and rental assistance. Um, you know, we've seen some promising steps at the federal level in relation to welfare support, but they've been quite tiny amounts and incommensurate with the rising price of food and energy in particular. So responses are going to require really bold decision-making, for example, at uh, addressing the rising cost of rent and affordability of housing, tinkering at the edges, which is what's been going on in policy terms for the last decade, is no longer sufficient. That's that's at the macro level. The and Another thing at the macro level is the fact that young people are entering more what's called fluid or uncertain labour markets. Now, this isn't a condition that we necessarily have to accept. And so while we're thinking about the freedom and flexibility associated with the gig economy, we also have to be thinking about what kind of security and provisions uh, are there for people in between jobs or for whom working in the gig economy isn't desirable. And we, fortunately, we have some thought going on at a federal level about how to respond to that. But this is a longer-term trend, very pervasive. Actually, Australia's been slower than some other countries to adopt a kind of gig economy models, but they appear to be growing. So that's employment. At a... At an individual level, we have what I could comfortably characterise as a mental health crisis amongst young people. And this requires on-the-ground support, provision of services and support for young people. And where, for example, the federal government recently decided to uh, end the provision of subsidised services for mental health, this is a step backwards as far as I'm concerned that, that, that we need to be growing that. The final thing I'd say is that we can have these macro level policies to do with the labour market and housing, for example, but it's organisations on the ground that are interacting directly with young people that can perhaps do the most benefit. So we've got people organisations in every state and territory in this country. Uh, in Victoria, where I'm based, we have organisations like Yakvik who do really good work and understand the needs of young people where they're at. Because when we talk about young people, they defy categorisation. They're not... There's great diversity within that, within that cohort that we call young people. But those providers on the ground understand their neighbourhoods, understand the needs of particularly young people within those communities. And so it's that targeted localised support that can make a big difference. That was researcher Lucas Walsh. Catch the full interview on the Represent podcast. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has attended this week's G7 summit in Japan as a guest. The trip comes after a meeting of the Quad Alliance, including Australia, India, Japan and the United States, was cancelled by the US President Joe Biden last week. Prime Minister Albanese met with President Biden at the G7, where Biden apologised for calling off the meeting. I'm looking forward to our conversation today and hosting you for a official state visit this year in Washington, D.C. And again, I 
truly apologize to you for uh, having you to come here rather than me being in Australia right now. Uh, but we have a little thing going on at home I gotta pay attention to. Climate change, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the global economy were all on the agenda at the Hiroshima summit. Taylor Oates reports. The the G7 summit hoped to achieve regional affairs such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, visited as well and was another oh. guest. So he got to talk to people um, and ask for their help, and that's where a lot of the the action now the Ukraine is coming from. Um, we wanted to, they talked about nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation. So that is something that specifically the Ukraine leader brought to the table. We talked about economic resilience and s- economic security. We, like I was there. Climate and energy. They talked about the food crisis. They talked about health, especially following the COVID-19 pandemic and further development. So, But then it was also very exciting because they highlighted areas gen- such as gender, human rights, digitalization, science and technology. A really exciting agreement happened on the sidelines of the G7 summit. So Mr Biden was due to travel from Japan to Australia to address Canberra and attend the Quad Leaders Summit at Sydney Opera House. But following tricky negotiations with Congress on the US debt ceiling, he had to cut his trip short and return to Washington to yeah. deal with these issues. Um, so then the pair met on the sides, sidelines of the G7 summit to kind of discuss the things that they had planned for that weekend. They talked about China's ambition and in the Indo-Pacific region, they signed an agreement where they would um, start a climate and critical minerals clean energy transformation compact. They want to establish climate and clean energy as central pillars of the United States and Australian alliance. I'm making a little triangle with my hands. So Australia and United States government agreed on the importance of addressing the climate crisis and ideally want to start actioning things within 12 months. Australia and the United States trying to work together to bring the global average temperature to down 1.5 degrees Celsius. That was Taylor Oates for Represent, available on your preferred podcast platforms. The Melbourne Queer Film Festival has named Cerise Howard as its program director for the upcoming event. She spoke to Loud and Queer's Nick Salas-Welsh about what this entails and her plans for this year. Oh, it's tremendously important. has been for a uh many a long year. I've, I've been attending since the late 90s um, and throughout that period it's been a vital part of my uh, film cultural uh, experience and, and the, the broader cultural landscape here in Melbourne, a, a city which is never wanting for film festivals yep. or for uh, cultural activity, um, perhaps with the exception of that grim period of a couple of years back, um, which doesn't require much elaboration, I'm sure. <laughs> that was uh, not as festive as things are once more now and, yes. and will definitely be come November when the, uh, the 33rd edition of the MQFF um, is staged and the first under my stewardship. Yes, and and your relationship to the community of film festivals as well, how has that developed over the years and coming to now as program director? Oh, that's that's um, a long um, story with many chapters and, <laughs> and tangents and digressions. Um, I've, I've actually had a, a history with queer film that goes back just over 20 years, queer film festival. I was on a selection panel in about, I think, 2002, and at intervals thereafter, I've uh, had varying sorts of engagements with this particular festival, let alone others, um, whether I've reported on it for media, like uh, the online film journal Senses of Cinema or Queer Street Press, mm. or 
Uh, I've participated in panels, panel discussions uh, at the festival, but I've also worked with queer film festivals overseas, uh, a particular favourite being Mizipatra in the Czech Republic, in mm. Prague, um, where I've, I've been involved a few times and been on a jury there and run Q&As and had the privilege of running one of those with Todd Haynes. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful festival they have over there. Mm. Sadly, it's at a similar time to us here now, so I can't have my can't cake and eat it and, <laughs> and do both. Um, and, and in terms of other queer film activity, I was one of the co-founders of Tilda here, which is, a, nice. is Melbourne's trans and gender diverse film festival, which will be resurgent in the new year. I'm very happy to say, having just participated in a custodianship group mm. uh, activity, uh, that, that activity was to appoint a board who will in turn appoint staff and that festival will resume in the new year at some point, which is yeah. wonderful. And, and with those various involvements and responsibilities you've had throughout the years, um, do you find or, or how do you find those experiences will influence your new role as program director at MQFF? Well, that, those will all, uh, all help me remain community-minded. Yep. I'm talking about a particular community here, which has any number of communities nested within it and ever-expanding and evolving. Mm. Um, but I'm very used to programming film in other contexts as well. So I've been a co-curator of the Melbourne Cinematheque yes. uh, for many years now too, uh, which uh, runs Wednesday nights at Acme, which is, of course, M- one of MQFF's key venues. Mm. And I've programmed for many years too for the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia, which I was a co-founder of and artistic director of for five years. So I've, I've got that, um, racked up quite a bit of experience in the sorts of juggling you have to do when piecing together all of the parts of a festival. Mm. Um, especially, uh, it can be a very challenging undertaking because you don't know what all the parts are at the outset. Yep. You might have some broad ideas about themes um, and uh, there might be things going on in the, the world around you locally or, or more broadly that need addressing and need being programmed too. But at this point in time, just to, I've, I've had four days in the role as we speak now, <laughs> um, I'm still just learning the internal landscape of the festival. Yep. I already have some ideas about what I want this year's festival to be like and feel like, but uh, in terms of the film content, especially new films. I'm not all over that yet. I've got a lot of viewing to do, which mm-hmm. I'm, of course, relishing the prospect of doing. Yeah. But I'm also very keen to apply a historical lens to this year's festival, and I've got some ideas have long been percolating Yes, in that regard. That's good. And and for anyone who's tuning in or, or doesn't really know a stupid but necessary question, what would your responsibilities be as program director, and what do you see happening um, what do you oversee happening in the role? Yeah, well, the the most um, obvious uh, role, responsibility, is the film program, yep. what's on the screens and when, and um, so securing all of those films, not just finding them and, and selecting them, but there's behind-the-scenes negotiations that have mm-hmm. to occur in order to land them. Uh, but then there's all the ancillary um, offers that can be just as important and, and really enrich the, the big screen offerings. And that's panels and workshops and prizes yep. and parties. Um, for me, what makes a film festival is not just the film, but very much the festivity as well. And 
it needs to be um, an event that where any festival needs to be an event where those who attend have an experience which is much greater than the sum of simply having seen a film. Uh, they need to see a film in company, and maybe it's company they know, maybe it's company they don't. It's an opportunity to mm. meet others, to debrief after a film, to unpack it in, in company, perhaps have a beverage or two, some food, um, yeah. you know, attend a party, have some fun. I mean, that's something that I've always cherished in is the sense of community which film festivals and the Queer Film Festival has fostered. And um, last year was the first time I attended and it was fantastic with my friends. Um, how do you plan to elevate those experiences that you're talking about outside of the screenings um, now that you are in a important role in the festival? Well, um, yeah, I mean, this is a key question, how, how to elevate the experience. And uh, something that the, the festival hasn't had so much of for the... I'm not quite sure just how long I'd be able to state this because we, we lost a couple of years mm. with lockdown times, really. But a, a real sense of a hub, yep. so somewhere where there's a, a place to go at any time during the festival mm. where you can run into friends or strangers and make new friends, somewhere where you can always feel that you are amongst a community, yep. that you uh, needn't feel isolated, because certainly there'll be people coming to the festival this November who are treading tentatively into this community. There are people... Perhaps they're questioning their identity and want to just sort of, you know... Wade take, in. <laughs> yeah, just make those first little tentative steps and, and, and get a sense that, yes, it is actually for them. In fact, it's a very welcoming space. Mm. That's, that's a, a key uh, key to it all is to make anyone actually feel welcome. Uh, and when I say anyone, I, I don't mean neo-Nazis or others who are presently doing their utmost yes. to uh, propagate fear and, and nonsense uh, around um, the queer community, they're not welcome. But most anybody else will be. Yes. Yeah. That was Melbourne Queer Film Festival Program Director, Cerise Howard. Catch the full interview on the Loud and Queer Talks podcast. Jetstar has tightened up its check-in and boarding rules in a bid to restore punctuality to its beleaguered flight schedule. Passengers will now need to check in, drop their bags, and get to the gate sooner before their domestic and international flights. Chief Operating Officer Matthew Franzi publicly apologised for the airline's woes last October. We know we haven't delivered to the customer expectation. There are unfortunate or unexpected events that will continue to occur. We plan to have spare aircraft. To lose two aircraft in such quick succession made a significant impact in our operation. The airline is also hiring more staff to improve customer service, Declan Evans reports. Well, Jetstar has changed the flight rules on Tuesday as the changes impact check-in, bag drop and gate closures. Jetstar's aim is to sharpen up its operations as like Jetstar travellers will need to arrive at the airport earlier. Check-in and bag drops are now closed at 10 minutes earlier. Boarding gates now close 20 minutes before domestic and international flights. Jetstar is trying to compete with other budget airlines. Senior Travel consultant at TaylorMade Travel, Cassandra Taylor, said, Make sure you show up to the airport with plenty of time. Do your research or walk through a travel agent who knows the rules. As gates are, are closing earlier, so don't be late. That was Declan Evans for Panorama, available on your preferred podcast platform. 
You're listening to On The Beat from Sin Media's news team. Thanks for your company. We've still got lots to come. Keep up with the latest updates by listening live on 90.7 FM or digital radio in Melbourne or Geelong. Or listen anytime online. Just visit sin.org.au or search Sin. That's S-Y-N on your preferred podcast platform. And let us know what you think about today's stories by messaging at Sin Media on the socials. Stay with us. Today is LGBTQ Domestic Violence Awareness Day, highlighting the one in three queer Australians who experience intimate partner violence. Ben Bjarnason is the regional coordinator of the Queensland Police Service LGBTI Liaison Officer Program and founded the day in 2020. He spoke to Lachlan Patrick about the issues he aims to address. Uh, look, it's incredibly important to raise awareness of the issue because so often we find that LGBTQ people are just simply not being recognised by other awareness campaigns or um, in media or in um, government campaigns. So it's just so important that uh, LGBTQ plus communities um, feel that there is support out there for them, that they are recognised and um, there is people out there who will help them. In your work before you were, you know, you became an advocate for this, you kind of dealt with domestic violence cases as more of an outsider. What prompted your advocacy and why is this work so meaningful to you? Yes, yeah, so I had my own experiences of domestic violence um, back in around 2012, 13. And, uh, you know, as a police officer, I was dealing with domestic violence cases every day, but even though I was um, in that sort of position, I wasn't recognising it in my own relationship because um, it was a case of, you know, I thought it was something that it was um, heterosexual men perpetrating violence against heterosexual um, women, and I didn't think it was something that could really affect me. So um, I guess, you know, my position in the police and not recognising it, I thought, you know, what chance have other people who are sort of working in this sort of field, you know, what chance have they got of um, sort of being aware of what an unhealthy or healthy relationship looks like. So I went on to do a Churchill Fellowship and I went uh, over to six different countries and uh, investigated methods for police to enhance the way that they respond to domestic violence and LGBTIQ communities. And that's really uh, gone from there. How can domestic violence maybe look different in queer relationships as opposed to heterosexual relationships? Queer relationships, there's obviously a lot of similarities to heterosexual relationships, but there's also unique methods of um, people using power and control, and they can include threats to out or reveal a partner's uh, sexuality, their gender identity or their health status, the family, friend or work colleagues. Uh, there's, you know, um, abuse around how a person prevent, uh, presents, sorry, so um, telling someone they're too masculine, they're too feminine, they're too butch, they're too them sort of abuse around the, that identity and the way that that person um, presents, then, uh, you know, they're stopping them from going to LGBTQ um, events, venues, preventing them from having LGBTQ friends, uh, and just access to, you know, other things, access to gender-affirming um, care, gender-affirming clothing. Um, so there's just a few others like that that you know, don't necessarily affect heterosexual relationships. Is there a lot of reporting on how common this is for the LGBTQ community or is that something that might still be a bit lacking? Look, it's definitely lacking, but at the same time, you know, the most recent studies, um, one out of La Trobe University in Victoria, um, the Private Life 3 survey, and the other one was 
uh, sorting it out report out of New South Wales, the University of Western Sydney. Both of those have shown sort of around um, 62% of LGBTQ plus people have experienced uh, domestic violence in their lifetime. So um, pretty concerning figures, but they're still definitely, um, you know, a really huge need for more research to be done in this area. Okay. Now you have, you've travelled internationally to consult with police departments about how to best, you know, tackle this issue and engage with the queer community. What have you found, I guess, on your Churchill Fellowship kind of travels? The most important things, I guess, um, is accessibility to be able to report uh, in the first place and, um, you know, a person's comfort in being able to report. So uh, a big thing was uh, LGBTI uh, liaison officers and the availability of them and accessibility of them uh, for queer communities to report to. Another one was uh, online reporting. So being able to report online and it sort of takes that barrier away of having to go into a police station front counter and reveal your sexuality or reveal your gender identity in you know a weight room uh, full of people. Um, it's not necessarily safe. So um, being able to report online um, via a form initially for sort of non-emergency purposes, um, that can be a really um, useful tool. Um, but they're, yeah, I guess they're the main two. And, you know, just the necessity for police to be aware of what our relationships can look like, that it's not necessarily going to be um, two cisgender gay men or two cisgender lesbians. It could be any kind of relationship with any um, sort of gender identity or sexuality um, and being aware of that and the challenges that those people might face in reporting, why they might be apprehensive in contacting police and understanding what they can do to um, make people feel more comfortable in contacting them or approaching them. Access and awareness is something you've worked on as the regional coordinator of the Queensland Police Service LGBTI Liaison Officer Program. Can you tell me a little bit more about that program and what it's like? Yeah, so the LGBTI Liaison Officers, the volunteer role on top of your usual role, there's about 170 throughout the state. Um, and they just work as a sort of um, a bridge between police and LGBTQ communities, I suppose, um, where, um, you know, if queer folk are contacting liaison officers, they know that, um, you know, they're specially trained or they're part of the community themselves a lot of the time. Uh, so they can contact those people and know that they're not going to be judged, they're not going to be um, treated inappropriately, and then those officers can generally help them. Um, getting in contact uh, with an officer to report whatever the case may be. But, you know, personally i found over the years that a lot of the time it's people just wanting advice um, on, you know, what the different processes are in reporting crimes or domestic violence and what their options are and where they can get referred to for support. So, uh, and then again, you know, it's the on the other hand, it's a really great tool for police officers if they've got... Um, you know, someone in a queer relationship or a queer person reporting crime and they might necessarily know what support services are available that might be um, might be good for an LGBTQ person to go to. So they ring liaison officers and find out where they can um, refer someone to appropriately. If there's someone listening and they want to get involved raising awareness or supporting LGBTQ Domestic Violence Awareness Day, how can they get involved? 
So if they visit our website, which is evafoundation.org, there is a huge amount of information on there about how to get involved. Um, and we've even created a toolkit, uh, which has a step-by-step um, process of the many different ways you can get involved. It could be by taking the pledge to show your support support for victims and survivors and help change that conversation around domestic and family violence. Um, it could be hosting an activity at work or at home or in your community, um, starting a fundraising um, sort of campaign in your workplace or your school or university, um, or just you know getting involved by spreading the word about the Awareness Day through social media. There's a bunch of resources there around uh, social media tiles and things like that that people can share um, on their own social media. So plenty of ways to get involved and it can be as easy as posting something to your socials. That was LGBTQ Domestic Violence Awareness Day founder Ben Bjarnason. Catch a full interview on the Loud and Queer Talks podcast. If this story raised issues for you, call the National Sexual Assault Family and Domestic Violence Counselling Line on 1800RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. Prominent ABC journalist Dan Grant is on eight weeks leave after facing online abuse and threats against his family. The threats ramped up after Grant appeared on the broadcaster's program covering colonization and the monarchy on the night of Prince Charles's coronation. Grant told Q&A viewers on Monday about his decision to take a step back. To those who have abused me and my family, I would just say, if your aim was to hurt me, would you have succeeded? And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I must have given you so much cause to hate me so much to target me and my family to make threats against me. I'm sorry. And that's what Yinjimara means. It means that I'm not just responsible for what I do, but for what you do. It's not just a word. It is sacred. It is what it means to be Wiradjuri. On Thursday, New South Wales police charged a man with two counts of online harassment against Grant. Bridie Golding reports. He's announced that in the wake of the torrent of racial abuse that he's received for years, we've all we've all known about it. We've been hearing about journalists, Indigenous journalists, journalists who are people of colour, queer journalists, uh, disabled journalists, they all receive all this, you know, discrimination online. So he's going to be stepping away from his work at the ABC. He's sort of said it's not social media that's the big issue. Obviously, social media is an issue, huge issue. But he's saying it's the media itself. It's an inherent sort of bias. He actually said in his sign-off from Q&A last night that, you know, he considers himself to be part of the problem. In response, hundreds of ABC staff around the country walked out in support, carrying signs that say, I stand with Stan, and condemning the institutional kind of situation that they have there. And he's accused the ABC of institutional failure to address the racism that he's been experiencing. A quote from an internal ABC email says, The experiences of ABC presenter and commentator Stan Grant following our coverage of the coronation of King Charles III have been distressing and confronting for the ABC, as they should be for the entire media industry and the broader community. Racism must never be tolerated, and I am dismayed that Stan has been exposed to such sickening behaviour. Stan has our full support, and he has always had our full support. They condemn commercial media outlets. 85% of journalists of colour had received racial abuse. Most were warned unofficially by their employer or by senior um, employees, but were not provided with official support or ways to deal with the online abuse that they experience. That was Brady Golding for Represent, available on your preferred podcast platforms.
The federal government has confirmed it will move forward with regulations on buy now, pay later services like Afterpay and Klarna. The government intends to treat the services like credit cards, which means they will face tougher requirements under the Credit Act. Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones originally flagged the changes in March. The right sort of regulation will ensure you've got checks and balances so that people who simply can't afford it should find it difficult to prove the case about why they should get another account. A Treasury paper published last year found the services contributed to financial harm through unaffordable and inappropriate lending practices. Freddie Moffat reports. Buy now, pay later services are going to be regulated by the end of the year. They've been considered essentially tech companies. A common theme that we've seen with tech companies, like uh, Uber, for example, is of course the biggest one. And of course, these buy now, pay laters, they do a lot of things that tech companies don't usually do, and they say they've disrupted an industry. But Australia is set to regulate these buy now, pay later services by putting them under the Credit Act. So the Credit Act essentially just regulated all these credit products. So think a credit card from a major bank or a loan or anything that involves an organisation giving you money and you have to pay that back. That is essentially what the Credit Act regulates. It makes sure that the people that are getting these loans and getting these credit cards are not being... It's not predatory, basically, so you can actually afford and you're able to pay that back and you're not going to dig yourself into a giant hole. So that's pretty much what Afterpay and ZipPay and all these other buy now, pay later companies are going to be put under into. So basically, before this regulation, if you wanted to sign up to an Afterpay account, it is incredibly easy. But this regulation would now require people to, uh, which would now require these organisations to comply with responsible lending or obligations and have Australian credit licences, which is basically a legal obligation that says, hey, we're not going to be predatory, we're going to make sure we're responsible and the people that we're giving money to are actually going to be able to pay it back. In 2020, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission found that some consumers were suffering serious harm as a result of buy now, pay later expenses, especially because previously buy now, pay later was used for uh, clothes or like buying a new phone, and now people are using it for their grocery run at Coles or Woolies or a grocery store, so it's becoming ever more prevalent. There's been evidence to suggest that that these services disproportionately affect women, First Nations communities, and of course people on low incomes. That was Freddie Moffat for Represent. On the socials, at Sin Represent. New University of Melbourne research out this week shows for many young people feelings of hopelessness that developed during the pandemic have lingered. Quentin Mayer is a research fellow in the Melbourne Graduate School of Education working on the Life Passion Project. He spoke to Panorama's Taylor Oates about its findings. The Life Patterns Project is a big project and one of the biggest studies that follows young people in Australia. So we survey them every year, we recruit them in senior high school, and then we survey them every year to see how they're faring, how their transitions are working, um, and also what's concerning them and what's working for them. And so we did our first report last year with around 1,200 participants. And we found some, some pretty major concerns around mental health, around um, pessimism toward the future, and around political voice. And um, these are the main things that we cover in the report that we may talk about today. Absolutely. I think that's so intriguing to hear from these young people. And you were saying earlier that you're really working on amplifying that youth voice in this report. Um, which is really great. Do you feel that the, the recent federal and Victorian budgets have supported Australian youth? And if so, why or why not? Um, 
It's a it's a difficult question. Um, to an extent, it has, but I think the the big issues are not really there, in my opinion. Um, young people do not feel like they they're being heard in that, at least in that report. That's what we're seeing. Uh, they don't feel like the big issues, especially around climate. Um, around mental health services and support in schools, but also outside of schools. All of these services are not at the level um, where they would expect it. And, and so the, the budgets could do better on that front, both at the state level and at the federal level. Mm. So this report really highlights the, the mental health of young people. What can be done to support the mental health of young people? That's that's the the big question, right? Mm. Because um, the the what we observe in this report, which is based on the survey we did last year, is part of a broader trend that's been observed nationally of a decline in mental health and well-being for young people, and that's been going on for almost a decade now. So it's a, it's a major trend. Um, what can be done? Uh, young people are telling us that. Um, anxiety and the pressures that they're facing in schools in terms of expectations to achieve um, the study pressures that are happening at the school but also at home in their personal lives these are big issues that our cohorts are facing and so um, the support they can receive in school um, and also outside of schools in terms of relationships um, in terms of learning pace of learning um, these are all things that can happen you make some really great points there. The, res- the results showed that a majority of people felt optimistic about their future, but fewer than half felt optimistic about Australia's future. And then also one in six students were optimistic about the future in the world. Only one in six. Mm. Um, what factors do you believe has caused the next generation to feel pretty negatively towards the future nationally and internationally? Yes, this is this is another one of the major findings, I think, from the report, that um, divergence between... Uh, a sense of what's going to happen to me as an individual um, versus what's going to happen to young people, people of my age um, in the country and also internationally. And it's quite concerning um, that effectively young people seem to tell us, um, I can find the resources, I can work to make some things work for myself in my own life. But collectively, um, um, there's big issues that need to be addressed um, at this level of society, not just individuals. Mm. In the survey, students were asked, thinking about the issues that young people are facing in Australia, uh, what advice would you give our politicians? And I thought that was a really interesting question to, to broach to such a politically inclined generation what were some of the responses that you got from that question um yes that uh, i think the comments that we got is perhaps the richest part of the surveys because you know surveys will have close questions yes no or you rate on a scale what you think uh, but we also give them a space to write in their own words the comments and and that's where we get really the the meaning of what's what's happening in the lives of young people and some of the comments we got um in terms of advice to politicians are listen Listen more. Um, Make sure that political decisions are based on information and what matters not only to older people, but also to young people. Um, Take the science seriously, especially when it comes to climate change. Don't turn um, scientific evidence into partisan politics. That's another one. But there was also a bit of disillusion with politicians when it comes to even just being heard. Um, Some respondents wrote that... There would be no point in giving advice to politicians. They would not listen anyway. So that's the more kind of bleak side 
of the responses. But yeah, taking science seriously and giving a voice and institutionalizing a voice for young people who do have political views, that's quite important. How can these students get their, their voices heard in politics? You said it was a major issue. Uh, there are things happening in that space that are um, encouraging, in my view. Um, there's a whole debate around the legal voting age. Um, so there is a movement to, to bring the voting age down to 16, which would be a, a, a significant change for young people. Um, in part, it's also political representation. So um, most of our political representatives are much older and young people are not really represented there. Um, but it's also um, in consultations with youth organizations that could be taken more seriously. Um, and it could be far more of a two-way conversation than, than a one-way um, one street. That's really interesting. I want to kind of come back to where you said that this is going to be like a yearly yearly thing that you partake in? Are you following the same set of students or a new set of students? Kind of, what, was, what does the future of this survey look like? Yes, well, it's, it's a big program of research. And so we have the resources to go back to the same participants and then track what's happening in their lives. And that's really amazing because we can see how things are changing over time for the same people. Because sometimes, as we know, contextual factors can make you have a hard time at a specific point in time, COVID being an obvious example. But things can get better and so being able to track the same young people over time is going to be really valuable and we're also adding um, an additional group of students at least the same size so another thousand or thousand five hundred students this year to broaden the sample and have as broad a set of perspectives as we can get that was researcher quentin mayer catch the full interview on the panorama podcast a freshly discovered fossil in south africa has shown an ancient species of predator migrated across continents while active a previous fossil was discovered in Russia, showing the predator migrated over 12,000 kilometres. Researcher Pia Viglietti spoke about her work in 2021. Our study has been the first to try and quantify the dynamics of the extinction event on land from the perspective of the Crew Basin. And the data included um, hundreds of fossils collected and prepared um, by team members and co-authors from Azuka Museum in Cape Town and the National Museum in Bloemfontein. So um, their collecting and fossil preparation over the years really helped make this investigation possible. They went extinct during the Permian-Triassic mass extinction, which is believed to have wiped off 70% of species on Earth. Sura Mishra reports. This was approximately 300 million years ago when the world was coming together to form the giant supercontinent Pangaea. And... Uh, Traveling, you would think that when it's all cut together like that, traveling from Russia to uh, South Africa should be easy, but it was, it still trekked almost 12,000 kilometers. It became extinct in this period called the Permian Triassic mass extension. A mass extension event is essentially any point in time in the history of Earth where um, biodiversity declines, where something something like climate change it may not necessarily be environmental factors but something results in um just biodiversity dying off and uh, the permian triassic around 250 million years ago was roughly a time period like this when we lost about 90 percent of marine life and about uh, 70 percent of terrestrial life it's been a very long journey and it's been a very long journey in reconstructing certain things but here we are Fossils are just an amazing, amazing snapshots into history. Fossils are essentially, uh, literally, 
quite literally snapshots into history. They may sometimes have DNA evidence, but uh, you look at fossils and you compare different fossils to each other to fill in the gaps in our family tree, like in our tree of life. And yeah, that that's how it happened. Uh, some paleontologists and scientists found these fossils and they were like, well, that looks very similar to this other creature we found, but this dates further back. Or oh, maybe this was a descendant of this creature. It was part of our family tree, though. So it's just helping us fill in all the gaps. The more fossils we found, the more f- gaps we fill. That was Sura Mishra for Panorama, airing 5 p.m. Thursdays on Sin. The New South Wales Law Enforcement Conduct Commission has released a report showing it raised concerns with police about mental health callouts. The commission found 43% of critical policing incidents in a five-year period involved an interaction with a person in a mental health crisis. The report comes as New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb deals with the fallout of the tasering of a 95-year-old with dementia. I've said from the beginning, and it's important now, and I remain the same, that this this is a proper process to remain fair and to see that the investigation is not prejudiced and I am confident that we have come to a position now seven days later that this matter is before the court without that interference. Of course this has been traumatic for everyone in the the police force and this is one matter while the rest of the police force continues to do their job 24-7 to protect and and, um, look after the citizens of New South Wales. Clara Nowland died in a hospital this week and a police officer has been charged over the incident. Lachlan Patrick reports. In New South Wales, they established uh, just over five years ago a commission called the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission and they've essentially monitored New South Wales police and their conduct since about 2017. Now, this commission yesterday, they released a report into its first five years of investigation. So this covers 2017 all the way up to about halfway through 2022. What they found was a high proportion of critical incidents involving police have involved a person experiencing a mental health crisis. But despite this, police training on how to respond to someone in mental health crisis is currently extremely limited. So I've got some numbers for you. The LECC found that of 157 total critical incidents they investigated, 43% involved an interaction with a person in a mental health crisis. Then of 78 incidents deemed by police to have arisen from an interaction with a police officer, 60% rose as a consequence of self-inflicted harm. So some really, really serious situations there that police are essentially finding themselves in. So there have been, you know, coronial inquests and all sorts of investigations. And what the LECC has um, found has been recommended to police over the last five years. They've recommended increased collaboration and scenario-based mental health training. So not just theory, actually get in there and do some role plays. Um, More collaboration with the New South Wales Ambulance Service and also a system to dispatch appropriately trained police officers um, to respond to, to be identified at incidents um, which involve someone suffering a mental health um, crisis. So there, there, there is a program that exists called the PACER program. That's the Police Ambulance Clinicians Early Response Program. Um, however, since April 2020, only 13 out of 45 police districts have rolled out this program. And look, while it's a very good program, it only covers eight hours of the day. And as we found last week, it is those times when, you know, you don't have someone on call when very serious things can happen. That was Lachlan Patrick for Represent, available on your preferred podcast platform. This has been On The Beat from Sin Media's news team. 
Thanks for your company. I'm Sarah. And I'm Liz. To keep up with the latest news updates, follow at Sin Media on the socials. If you missed anything, visit sin.org.au to catch up or search SYN on your preferred podcast platform. And don't forget to tune in next time by listening live on 90.7 FM or digital radio in Melbourne or Geelong.